Again, if you'd like to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. I thought before we get into the book, we'd have a little quiz. Just a little quiz. And the question is, are you obsessed by prophecy? I read a little article recently. Top 10 ways to know if you are obsessed with prophecy. Let's see if you are obsessed with prophecy. First way you'll know if you're obsessed with prophecy, you always leave the top down on your convertible in case of the rapture happens. Because his coming is so near, you never buy green bananas. You talk your church into adapt, adopting the 60s pop song, Up, Up, and Away, as a Christian hymn. Barcode scanners make you nervous. You refuse a tax refund check because the amount comes to 666. You can name more signs of the times than you can commandments. You believe that there is an original Greek and Hebrew text with Schofield notes. That's an insight. You believe the term church fathers refers to Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye. <laughs> you get goosebumps when you hear a trumpet. And finally, you use the Left Behind series as devotional reading. <laughs> I hope you're not obsessed by prophecy. By the way, there's two ditches you can fall in when it comes to prophecy. Actually, there's even more than that, but one of them would be to be obsessed. In other words, you want to argue more about whether you're premillennial, postmillennial, pre-trib, post-trib than uh, how do you get transformed uh, by the grace of God as far as to become more like Jesus Christ? Uh, sometimes people just want to argue. In fact, that would be one of the things that I would, and I've mentioned and I'll keep mentioning, prophecy ought to transform. If it's just for curiosity, if it's just for some information, that's not why prophecy was given. And we'll see that in a moment. It ought to transform that's one ditch. By the way, there's another ditch. Others get nervous and very hesitant when studying prophecy. They vacillate because there are so many views. Again, let's just take the end time specific. You know, is it pre-wrath? Is it, excuse me, is it pre-trib? Is it mid-trib? Is it pre-wrath? Is it post-tribulation? What, you know, when does the rapture happen? Is there a rapture? Am I dispensational? Am I covenantal? Am I what? <laughs> so many different views. And then you get into the millennial. Does Christ come back the second time? And again, not the rapture, but his second coming. Is it premillennial? Is it amillennial? Is it postmillennial? And some people just give up and say, you know, I'm panmillennial. In the end, it's all going to pan out. And don't worry about it. I've actually had people tell me that. Don't worry about it. And yet, we're coming to the book of Revelation because God wants us to understand it. Okay? You don't want to adopt a pan-millennial view. No book in Scripture reveals the glory of God and of Christ in more detail and more splendor than the book of Revelation. At the same time, no book has been more misunderstood, misinterpreted, and neglected throughout the history of the church. But again, as believers, we cannot afford, and I, I emphasize that, we cannot afford to ignore the immense truth that this book contains. We don't want to ignore it. In fact, in Revelation 22, verse 10, he commands us, and he says this, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And the word to seal up means to keep it secret. I think it was in even the apostles' mind, and certainly in the Lord's, 
that because of all the truth and because of the symbolism, there might be a tendency to not study the book. This particular book. Not the Bible, but as far as the book of Revelation. And yet at the very end, after giving us all the details, he says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Don't keep it a secret. Because the time is near. You need to, we need to hear it. We need to understand it. By the way, uh, some of the church fathers, some of the, the great reformers, just didn't even go to this book. Like Calvin. He didn't, I don't think he preached hardly anything, out of, if I'm not mistaken, Revelation. A number of the reformers. Again, I understand the context of the history. Uh, they were fighting for the authority of Scripture. They were fighting for the, the deity of Christ. And that was forefront. And yet... They sealed it up. They didn't expose. They didn't uh, give us understanding and give their congregations understanding. No, we want to we wanna make sure that, that we also see prophecy. Prophecy is encouraging to us. It, it, it exhorts us. It, it comforts us. It uh, gives us strength. It transforms us. We need to study prophecy. Now again, let's make sure that as we talk about the fact there are so many views... There are many things, though, in that true believers all believe, right? Um, the fact is that this is the Word of God. If you're a true believer, you're going to believe that this is the Word of God. That is both authoritative over our life, and hopefully you understand that it is also sufficient. That's the one that sometimes we forget, the sufficiency. By the way, that's why we're going to be doing an ABF. I want to make sure we understand the sufficiency of Scripture, that this book transforms us. We don't need anything else for our souls, for our lives. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, then you also know who Christ is, right? Who he is and what he's done. That indeed he is God from all eternity, came to this earth as the God-man, and went to the cross to sacrifice, allowed himself to be a sacrifice for our sin, right? That he is the propitiation, the acceptable sacrifice he is our atonement. And on the cross, the sacrifice was complete. So when a person puts their faith and trust and hope in Christ and receives him, as John 1 says, you become children of God. Your sins are forgiven, placed in the family of God. We all agree with that. I mean, if you are a believer in Christ, that's what you're believing. I mean, if you believe that it's you, I mean, if you believe it's Christ plus you, your works, uh, again, that is false. That's a false gospel. It's all of Christ. We are saved because of his sacrifice on our behalf. Let me give you, though, a few things, as it, uh, even within the prophecy realm, that, that all believers believe that there is going to be a literal, physical, visible return of Jesus Christ to the earth. All believers believe that. He's coming back. If you don't believe that, then that's not even Christianity. Now, again, people have a question, is he coming back before, during, after, you know, especially the millennial? Uh, how is he coming back? Some people say that we're in the millennial right, millennium right now, uh, or at least the kingdom era is now, and he comes back. And some, you know, there's all these different concoctions. But the point is that he's alive. Is he alive? And he's coming back. See, this world will not just dribble down to an end. He will, he will close out history on this, on this planet. Jesus Christ will close out history. And Revelation very clearly states that. The second thing we all, if you're a true believer as far as prophetic, the bodily resurrection of the dead. That there is an annihilation, that there is life after your physical body is dead. The physical resurrection. Now, we understand first resurrection of the living, second of the dead, but there's a, a, a resurrection. And finally, a final judgment. If there's resurrection, there's a final judgment. Those who are, um, have died and without Christ are now in Hades. There is coming a day of a lake of fire, which is hell. But for believers, they are with the, with the Lord, and someday they receive a resurrected body, and forever will be with the Lord uh, with a resurrected body, with a glorified body. Um, so again, we all agree. I want, I want to say those things because I don't want you to, boy, everything about prophecy, we, no, nobody agrees. No, 
There's a lot of things that we all agree with. Now, what we, many disagree with is time frames. Okay, time frames. Now again, how do we solve the problem? Because if we just go to the book, and we don't have any ground rules as it, way, as it were, uh, you can come to a lot of different interpretations. And a few weeks ago, we, we did a message on uh, hermeneutics. In other words, the science of properly interpreting Scripture. Hermeneutics. How do you properly interpret Scripture? You want to interpret it properly. Well, let me give you three quick, So, I, and we'll keep mentioning these. In fact, when we see these in Revelation, we'll mention them again to kind of like flag you. You know, I want you to remember, this is what we do. But as we approach Revelation, we want to, first of all, use the literal principle. The literal principle. In other words, interpret prophecy literally, normally, and plainly. We're going to seek to interpret Revelation in that way. Again, understanding figures of speech. As I said before, um, if, if I say I could eat a cow... You know I'm not talking about a literal cow, but I'm hungry. Uh, I mean, you're going to see symbolism, you're going to see hyperbole, simile, all that, uh, in, in the book. In fact, that's what makes it so challenging. And, and I am not going to say that in every instance I can say categorically, this is what he's saying. But the majority, the vast majority, I mean, it just flows so well. There's going to be questions. None of us are omniscient. But again, we want to go into the study encouraged. Because again, he said in 22, chapter 22, don't seal it up. This, is, this was written for you. In fact, he says in uh, chapter 1, verse, uh, well, the first verse, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants. <laughs> That's us. Okay. He, he wanted us to know, so therefore we have to study. So, first of all, literal principle. Second, when interpreting symbols, look for a built-in interpretation. As Dan Kenyon, uh, pastor, for, how long ago was Dan here? 20 years? Has it been that long? Yeah. What, what did he often say? When you're studying the Bible, you want to have what? Context, and then next thing you need to have is context, and next thing you need to have context. Context, context, context. Sometimes it's immediate context, sometimes it's, it's found within the book, sometimes the context is the entire Bible, but the idea is look for uh, built-in interpretation. Let the, uh, you know, find it in the context. And then finally, principle number three, compare Scripture with Scripture. It's called the synthesis principle. But again, that has to do with the context. We, we go to Scripture to understand Scripture. I think by using these principles and some of the other ones we mentioned, we're going to start seeing, okay, this makes sense. This was not given so that it would be this hidden book at the end of the Bible. This was given for our admonition and encouragement. But as we go into the study, write down this passage, 2 Timothy 2.15. If you were an Awana leader, how many of you, how many of you know what Awana was? How many of you were Awana leaders? How about this? How many of you were ever Awana kids? Oh, they, they are proud. Um, the theme verse for Awana, it says, be diligent. By the way, the word diligent means to exert yourself. Put energy. Work hard at it. Be diligent to present yourself. What's the next word? Approved. Approved to God. By the way, the word approved means something that has been tested and found to be correct. In other words, it had what it, what it, uh, what it uh, was supposed to be is what it turned out to be. Um, they would use that of coinage, uh, as I've told you many times. They, you, know, you wanted to make sure that if you had a coin and the coin was supposed to be a quarter ounce, that indeed it was a quarter ounce of gold. And they had a dacama, uh men who made sure that the coinage was correct, that people weren't shaving off just a little bit of the gold and then reusing it. Well, then you could get yourself a little pile, but you're cheating the people. The people, the men that were, they were called the dacamas, the approved, they were approving the coinage. So let's put this in the verse. 
Be diligent. Work hard to present yourself approved uh, to God, a worker, a laborer who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That word rightly dividing means to cut it straight. So that's how we want to get to the word of God. We want to be diligent to, to study hard so that what we're coming out with is correct, approved. And that we're cutting the word straight. That we're, we're giving the true interpretation. Uh, that we're humble. You know, humble means, you know, Lord, we are in desperate need of your spirit to give us insight. You, you can't approach the word of God like, you know, I've got the principles, I went to school, I'm, I'm, I'm old as a Christian, let's say you're talking, and I can just go there and I can figure it out. Or I know what John MacArthur says. <laughs> or I know what David Jeremiah says. I know what John Hagee says. You know, no, no, no. It, we need to work hard. And w- I, I say this uh, to say, uh, I would encourage you to be reading through Revelation. You know, now again, I mean, if you read it through, let's say, uh, chapter a day, that's 22 days you'd be done, or, or maybe just a little piece, or take the passage that we're in right now, chapter 1, and read that over, you know, familiarize yourself. I'd say be diligent. Be diligent. Well, let's get into the actual text. Um, let me just give you some of the, the different aspects. By the way, the, the outline today is not original with me, but um, I got it from two or three different sources, but I thought it was the best outline as we look at the first three verses. The first three verses pretty much gives us the, uh, the, the big picture of the, why the book was, you know, why do we have it in our hands. So the first one is its essential care, uh, nature. It's essential nature. First five verse or five words: the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we're just going to highlight the word revelation. The revelation. Again, as we have seen previously, how you approach the study of Scripture will, in great part, uh, determine your interpretation. Many view the book of Revelation literally, and this is sad, as bizarre, or at least mysterious. Yet God clearly states that rather than hiding the truth, he desires to reveal the truth. That's what I mean by the I mean that's what I mean by essential nature. It's the revelation. I mean, if we go to here and say, wow, it's bizarre. Like I don't know if I could ever get that. What is he talking about? And and I just don't think you could ever understand that. Well, wait a second. It's violating the actual first two words, the revelation. See, the rev- revelation means to reveal, uh, to become visible uh, concerning things that were before unknown, to unveil. That's what he, this is the unveiling. He's going to be telling us stuff, but he wants us to understand it. It's not, it's not um, hidden. He wants to... Uh, expose us to what's coming in the future. Again, this is the last chapter in God's story of redemption. This is the last chapter. 65 books, now we get the last one. The last installment. Written, by the way, I'm going to keep saying this, written around 95 A.D. That's a very, very important point. Uh, Those who are preterists see the entire book as being fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 70. Which, what they have to do then, is say that the book itself had to be written before A.D. 70. And yet if you look, and we'll, we'll see this in other messages, if you look, it's very obvious that this book, because of what it doesn't say and what it does say, uh, was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. Because, there's no, uh, because, because of how it's written things that are left out, things that are included in it. And so this is not, Revelation, just from the front end, is not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He is talking about the destruction of the world and what God is going to do, not just to Jerusalem. That's just a precursor. But what God is ultimately going to do through his servant Jesus Christ to the world. Um, As the account of Genesis is very clear... You know, I mean, if, if you were to go to Genesis chapter 1, and it says, you know, let there be light, and this was the first day, and 
Then there's let there be a firmament, and that's the second day, and third day, and fourth day, and fifth day, and sixth day, and seventh day. I mean, that's really clear. By the way, that was clear for thousands or hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's just been of recent that people say, well, that's not six literal days. However, the word yom, the word for day, as one guy said, he said, day with numerical uh, adjective in Hebrew always refers to a 24-hour period of time. Now, why do I bring that up? Because it's important. I, I, I would say that you want to make sure that you get the beginning correct, right? We want to make sure that we get the beginning correct, that God sovereignly, miraculously created this world. By the way, there is no such thing as Christian science. If you're saying that it's repeatable and, and observable, we weren't there. We just have to accept it by faith, don't we? Now, there is other Christian science, you know. There's other things that we can study from a Christian point of view. But sometimes I think we forget, wait a second, creation itself, what? Totally miraculous. Can't understand, our finite minds cannot understand how all that worked together, right? But we want to make sure we get it right, that God, our God, supernaturally, miraculously created six literal days. And then to make sure we got it straight, he even put in the Ten Commandments. Day of rest. Sabbath. Why? Because of what I did. I want you to remember it was me. I was sovereign. I was the miraculous. I was the one that created it. Because this is my earth. This is not our little play thing. Now you want to get the, the first part right. We want to get that clear. So God has also given a detailed and clear record of the ending. That's the book of Revelation. Wouldn't it be ridiculous, one man said, to think that God spoke with precision and clarity from Genesis to Jude, but then when it comes to the end of the book, abandon all precision and clarity? Wouldn't that be a ridiculous thought? I think it would. And yet, many Bible scholars and teachers and students often look at the book of Revelation and determine that it is vague and confusing. This approach is a serious error and strips the account of redemption of its climax as given by God. Because the climax is not just that perfect world, Adam and Eve fell, God made a promise to a man, Abraham, in you, through you, all will be blessed, and all the promises, you know, that build on the Abrahamic covenant, which is the Davidic and... and uh, Palestinian, the, and um, no, it's not just about that. It's not even just about the fact that Christ would die for our sin and redeem a people for himself, though that is absolutely critical. It's about the whole story of redemption. Does the earth groan? Is, is sin affected not only people but the earth? The, every, everything. Everything. You know, we look out and say, oh, you know, I, I, I love waking up. I'm a morning person. I love, in, in the morning, I love clean, crisp air. Yeah, I know, the rest of my family is still sleeping. They didn't even know that the sun rose, but I do. <laughs> and we look and we say, isn't it just so gorgeous outside? Now think about this. That's with sin tainting and destroying so much of the creation. The earth groans. We need to see the end. How does it all end? See, Christ's sacrifice is also going to lead to a new heaven and new earth because he has the right as the king to destroy what's here to create new. Everything will be new. Everything from you, you know, ultimately you're even going to get a glorified body. I know some of you are really anticipating that, especially the older you get, you know. But everything will be new. It's all based off of the sacrifice of Christ, but it's all moving towards that climax. That's why it's important to get it straight, because God's saying this is what it's moving towards. Now again, the revelation, apocalypsis, to make, to become visible concerning things before unknown. He's going to put the pieces together. The Lord has given prophecy not to confuse or to hide the truth, but to help us understand it. And again, be transformed by it. Very, very important. 
Now, let me give you just a piece, a different piece. Um, the Revelation nowhere quotes the Old Testament. I found that interesting. And I've got that from two or three different sources. I guess I was, I was, I guess didn't quite understand. 278 times, or 278 of its 404 verses refer to or allude back to the Old Testament, though. Okay? So it's alluding back to prophetic truth. And what it's doing is bringing all the prophetic truth of all the Old Testament and, and, and the, the pieces that we find in 2 Thessalonians, let's say, or uh, Matthew 24 and 25. And what he does is he brings all those pieces together and says, this is what the end looks like. So whereas they were getting pieces and understanding just, uh, just parts of uh, prophecy and all the previous books, now he puts it all together. This is how it all is going to play out sequentially. Let me, uh, let me give you an overview. What is the revelation going to be? Now again, oh, I'm missing up my pieces here. Uh, as one man said this, the apocalypse reveals a great many divine truths. See, I, I want to just highlight a few just as, a, just as an overview. First of all, it warns the church of the danger of sin and instructs it about the need for holiness. That's Revelation 2 and 3. It reveals the strength of Christ and believers, uh, the, the strength Christ and believers have to overcome Satan. It reveals the glory and majesty of God and depicts the reverent worship that constantly attends his throne. That's Revelation 4 and 5. The book of Revelation reveals the end of human history, including the final political setup of the world, the career of Antichrist, the climactic uh, battle of Armageddon. It reveals the coming glory of Christ's earthly reign during the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment. Uh, it depicts the eternal bliss of the new heaven and the new earth. It reveals the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ over all human and demonic opposition. The book of Revelation describes the ultimate defeat of Satan. Boy, we want to know that one, don't we? Like, is this, is he going to be, is he forever? No, he's defeated. And sin and the final state of the wicked and the righteous, uh, which is eternal joy in heaven. So, I mean, it's just all the different things that the book of Revelation he just, you know, like I said, you hear and you see, like in Daniel, that there's, uh, you know, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the living, but how does it all play out? Revelation puts all those pieces, the grand central station of the, of the book, of the Bible. So, that's the nature, the essential nature. Second of all, it's, let's see the central theme, though. It's the revealing, but what is the primary uh, person that's being revealed? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And while this book is certainly a revelation from Jesus Christ, we'll see that in a moment, it is also the revelation about him. Really, when it comes to this world, it is truly all about Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that from a religious standpoint. You know, sometimes at certain times of the year, you know, we really emphasize the birth of Christ. Or I did a ceremony yesterday, wedding ceremony, and, you know, we want to make sure Christ is exalted. Really, all of earth moves towards the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Every part of it. Today we were in uh, ABF talking about pride and humility. You know what our problem so often is, as far as as humans that are Christians, you know, believers? We try to put ourselves in, in the place of God. But Christ is the exalted one. He is the one that will receive all the glory in the end. And then he exalts the Father. I mean, the Gospels, think about this, just let's take New Testament. The Gospels is about Jesus Christ in his first coming, in, in his humiliation. But it's all about him. And so that's why we have five Gospels. Because we need five Gospels to, to show the glory of Jesus Christ. Because you have a Gospel in Isaiah 53. That's really the first Gospel. And then the New Testament shows you four more. Why? Because all the books cannot contain them, but we need to at least have five to show us the glory of Jesus Christ. I know you're going to say, that's not a Gospel. Okay, I got it. There's four New Testament. But you get the point? I mean, the thread of, of, of the Bible, the scarlet thread, is not just redemption, it's the glory of Christ. You see him, you know, Genesis 3. He's going to crush the serpent's head. 
It's all about Christ. Problem, sin, He's coming. Abrahamic covenant, it's going to be through Him. All the prophets, He's coming. Gospels, He's here. Oh, He's not coming as the reigning king yet. He's king. He's not coming as the reigning king yet. What, what are the epistles about? Well, they, they show us uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and, and how does that affect the church. All the books are talking about him. But then the book of Revelation presents him in his second coming. See, the Gospels were the first coming. Revelation is the second coming. Like, how is it going to end? So every vision and description of Christ in Revelation is one of majesty, power, and glory. You do not see Christ in his humiliation at all in the book of Revelation, which you would expect you wouldn't see, right? See, the humiliation was him going to the cross to die for our sins. That chapter is closed. Now we move to exaltation. We need to know how does it end. The first time, uh, Chris Wall, the pastor down at uh, at Dallas years ago, he wrote this. The first time the world saw Jesus, he came in the veil of our flesh. His deity was covered over with his manhood. His Godhead was hidden by his humanity. Just once in a while did his deity shine. Now, once in a while his deity shined. Matthew 17, transfiguration, right? Three apostles, or disciples at, at that moment, and they saw, they saw a glimpse of the glory of Christ at the transfiguration, or periodically when he would miraculously heal, you saw the power, his power. Most of the time, his glory, majesty, deity, wonder were veiled, though, in his first coming. Born in a crude surrounding Grew up in poverty, hungered, thirsted. He was buffeted, beaten, bruised, crucified, died between two criminals. That was the world. That's all the world knew. The last time the world saw Jesus, he was hanging in shame and misery and anguish upon the cross. Well, sure, he rose again. He rose again, but he appeared to his own. It wasn't to the world. But the last time the world saw Christ, he was dying as a criminal, crucified on a Roman cross. And that is where we see the grace and the love of God when by his stripes we were healed. That's, but that's all they saw. That's all that the world saw. Him dying. They, as a criminal, but we understand as our Savior, as our Lord. But, change point. Is that all that the world will ever see of our Savior? Dying in shame on a cross? Emphatically, no. No, no. It is also a part of the plan of God that someday this unbelieving, this blaspheming, this godless world shall see the Son of God in his full character, in glory, in majesty, in the full-orbed wonder and marvel of his Godhead. He is coming back and they will finally know who he is. Then all men shall look upon him as he really is. They shall see him holding in his hands the title deed to the universe, holding in his hands the authority of all creation in the universe above us, in the universe around us, in the universe beneath us, holding this world and its destiny in his pierced and loving hands. That's that's how it's coming. That's how it's going to end. See, think about how odd it would be if the world saw him dead. Now think about the father. I mean, I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. No, there's coming a day you're going to know my son. You're going to know, I'm not you, the world. You're going to know who he really is. And that's what the whole chapter 6 to, to 20 is. The glory of Christ. The book is really all about him. We get so, you know, like who is the Antichrist and who is the beast and who is the harlot and who is the child and you know, all the different pieces. It is all about the glory of Christ. It's all about him being magnified. Let's test that theory. Let's just test that theory for a moment. Let's say it's a theory. Let's say, well, let's go to the book of Revelation and, you know, is it really all about Jesus Christ? Is he really the focal point of this book? And again, I would say he's not only the focal point of this book, he is the focal point of all of history. But let's just test it. 
Chapter 1, Revelation. these are all from Revelation, chapter 1. And I won't give you the specific reference for time. In chapter 1, he's called the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings of the earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, the first and the last, the living one. That's how he's referred, just in chapter 1. Let's take chapter 2. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The one who has a sharp two-edged sword. The son of God. The one who has eyes like a flame of fire. Feet like burnished bronze. The one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Chapter 3. The one who is holy, who is true. The holder of the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. The amen, the faithful, and true witness. The beginning of creation of God. Now if you go, to, go on, let me just end with a couple more. And I, I could keep going. Chapter 5. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah. The root of David. The lamb of God. Let me say something about the lamb. Because you would think that in the end you would see him as portrayed as the lion. Actually, I think it's only one or two times as he referred to the lion of the tribe of Judah. 28 times he's referred to as the lamb. Now, why? The perfect, innocent one that came to this earth to do the will of the Father by dying for mankind, for those who would believe in him. That's what their lamb represents. And because he is the lamb And God has the one that has highly exalted him. He has the right to come back with the title deed and to do with this earth as he pleases because it's a love gift from the Father to the obedient Son. 28 times he's called the Lamb. But I think think we can move this from a theory to a fact, right? Uh, The book of Revelation is all about Jesus Christ, which I think is very encouraging for us. I, I think we need to stop and just say in our own spiritual lives, Is my life all about Jesus Christ? Because all of history is. And the entire end is. (laughs) It's just, I hope that we are not living not only on this dirt ball of a rebellious planet, I hope we're not rebellious in our own life. You know, rebellion would be this. God, thank you for saving me, but now it's all about me. No, no. Thank you for saving me, and I want to be your servant. So it's all about Christ. He is the main theme How about the divine source? Number three, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Which God gave him. Now, I want you to actually, let's look, if you're in in verse one right here. So it says, the revelation, Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, and he sent and signified it by an angel to his servant John. That's all of chapter, or verse one. And so we see the uh, chain of communication. I want, I want you to see the chain of communication here. God the Father, who is the one, this is the will of God being done, gives it to Christ. This is the line of communication. This is how we get the book. God gives to Christ, gives to his angel, gives to the apostle John, gives to his servants, which are us. That's the communication chain. So again, we want to keep that, um, that's just kind of like a sidelight, but I wanted you to get it, because that, the divine source starts with God the Father, to his son, to his angel, to John, and then delivered to us, sent to the seven churches, sent to the, you know, throughout, uh, throughout the rest of the history. So it was God that gave. Now, he gave, not only did he give the message, not only gave us the information, but he also gave his son. He, the father determined to exalt his son. And you say, well, where is that found? Philippians chapter 2. It's, we've been looking at this in our Christmas passage, uh, Christmas Eve service. Uh, that's why I actually chose it this year, because Philippians 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, what? Being in the form of God, did not, robbery, not, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He's God. And made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. What? Even the death on the cross. And that's where the world's 
That's where it stopped for the world, right there. Not even obedient. He, they just, he died. Don't know who he was, maybe a good teacher, maybe a good example. He couldn't have been a good teacher or an example. He called himself God. There's no, <laughs> you can't get away with just saying he was a good teacher. It's either he was truthful and he proclaimed himself the I am and he is, or he's not even a good teacher or a good example. I mean, who's, who says he'd be a good example if he lied? He's either the son of God, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or not. That's where the world ended it. But look at where God, God doesn't end it there. Verse 9, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And we won't read on, only to say he has highly exalted him. And really, the exaltation of Jesus Christ... By the way, the exaltation was, because he was obedient, even to the point of death on the cross, the perfect Lamb of God, he, didn't, he did not sin, but took our sin, God what? Well, first of all, he was laid three days in the tomb. What happened? Resurrection. And because he was the uh, humble Lamb of God, perfect obedience, not only resurrection, but ascension. And now it says he makes intercession for us. But now, finally, the return. The return. He's coming. That second coming. He's coming back. And we're going to see his glory. And the way the book basically uh, lays out is in chapter 1, we see who he is. Now, when he was writing how he is from the past... Uh, chapters 2 and 3, which are the, the books to the, or the letters to the churches, that's present in John's day, and well, even to our day. And then chapters 4 to the rest of the, the book, 4 to 22, is all future. So the book really plays out like this. You know, this is the message God gave to his son, gave to his angel, to John, to us, that chapter 1, this is who Christ always has been, past. We are in the church age, which is 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3, and this is the things to come, which is chapters 4 through 22. So that's how it basically breaks out. And it's all because, this is the point, don't miss the point, it's all because Jesus Christ came as the humble Lamb of God and accomplished the will of the Father. Now, that is huge for us, because we try to get our accolades on this side of death. That is not how it works in God's economy. Humiliation before exaltation, is how, and that's how it was with Christ. Christ was humbled, highly exalted. You are walking among unbelievers. We are in a, we are in, are we in a, um, a war? Are we, in a, are we living in a rebellious area? Not, not Alfred, not Horna. I'm saying this world is in rebellion against God. And sometimes we try to get our blessing and our, on this side. It's not, no, no. Humiliation, follow Christ, follow God, future exaltation. Look for your future exaltation in the, in the future, not now. It solves so many problems of our life if we just say, Lord, I just want to follow you now. Number four, it's beloved recipients. To show his servants. The word servant means, is the word doulos, it means slave. But that's us. God wanted his son to tell the angel, to tell John, this is what's going to happen, but he was saying it to the human recipients. You could say human recipient. I, I, I like the idea more of the beloved recipients. Because though we are slaves of God as his, but what did he call us in John? That we are friends I call you brothers. And when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, John 1 says, uh, born into the family of God, children of God. So the human recipients here are us. But we are, we, we are serving out of love, right? Out of love. In fact, John MacArthur said, you know, that word servant can refer to we're back to uh, Exodus chapter 21. In Exodus 21, when a servant, when a slave, 
loved his master and wanted to stay with his master even after he could purchase his freedom. This is what happened in Exodus 21, verse 5. But if a servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. I don't want to be released from he's such a loving master. Then this master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door uh, or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awe. And he shall serve him forever. And, and that's really the picture of when it says to his servants. That's how we should respond, right? I mean, it's like, the, it's like that illustration of uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln. He, he was really hit to the heart with slavery. And one day he went to the slave market. And he saw a young woman there being humiliated on the slave block. And his heart broke. And, and what Abraham Lincoln did was he actually purchased her. And then freed her. That's redeem, right? Redemption. But he said, you are free. You are free. You know, because she kept saying, what do you want? You know, where do I serve? You are free. And she said, no, but because you redeem me, I forever want to serve you. Or, you know, wow, that's a we, right? Lord, you have saved me. You have redeemed me. You have made me part of your family. I just want to serve you. Is that what's your heart? Amen. I trust that that's what's your heart. I just want to serve you. So that's how we should look at that word servant or slave. And then finally, things which must shortly take place. Now you're saying, wait, you said finally and you're on point five. You're trying to set us up. No, I think we need to just end here real quickly. Shortly take place. Shortly. The word shortly uh, has a number of different meanings. I believe, I truly, I mean solidly believe that here what he's referring to is not shortly in the sense of time of writing to the time of his return. It also can be uh, the, the interpretation of suddenness. Suddenness. The idea is, I think, two or threefold. That... You won't know the time frame, but let me tell you, when he comes, it's going to be sudden. That's why we call it the imminent return. We don't know. We don't know when Jesus Christ is going to come back. It's going to be imminent. It's going to be sudden. And I also believe uh, the, the emphasis is also the idea of without delay. In other words, we know this, especially from Acts 1, that the time frame is in the Father's hands. Right? The time frame isn't... But, so, so when he says that it must, it must shortly take place, well, what do you mean the shortly? Well, the idea is he's coming. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be quick. In other words, when it starts, when the ball is dropped, it continues on. Nothing is going to stop it. But no man knows the day or the hour. And yet he told the church of Pergamum, I am coming to you quickly. To Philadelphia, I am coming to you quickly. Three times in the end of the uh, book, he says, I am coming quickly. Same type of idea. And the idea quickly, again, is imminent. Imminent. And when I come, you're not going to know the day or the hour. And when I come, it's going to start and it's not going to finish. And it's going to happen quickly. Even, I mean, a, a, a thousand years is as a day in the eyes of the Lord, right? I mean, uh, Peter says that. So again, we say, boy, isn't that a long time? Seven-year tribulation, thousand-year reign of Christ? Well, no, thousand years is a day of, as one day, because he, he's not bound by time. But again, we need to be looking for that blessed hope, the things which more shortly take place. place. And he, he uh, delivered it through, again, his angel. That's point six, his angel. You know that... One-fourth of all the times that angels are mentioned, they're mentioned in the book of Revelation, of the 80-plus times angels are mentioned, 21 times are angels are mentioned in the book of Revelation, you're going to learn a whole lot from the book of Revelation as it pertains to angels. So that's supernatural delivery. And then we have the human author, his servant John. That's John the, uh, John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, obviously. John the Apostle, John the Baptist is, was dead by this point. But look at what John the Baptist, uh, John the Apostle called himself. To his servant John. To his servant John. That's the, the human author there. You know. 
Interesting thought. In the Gospel of John, he never mentioned himself. When he was writing the Gospel of John, he never mentioned himself by name. He called himself the Beloved, but he never mentioned himself. Here, four or five times, he mentions John. In fact, many times he says it this way, I, John. But I think he was thinking this way, I, John? Like, I, John, got this revelation? Just I? Like, he was like unbelievably blown away. Like, he was the one that received the truth of the end times. I, John. He says that in uh, 1, I think, verse 9 in chapter 22. He mentions it a number of times. And then five, uh, two other. Uh, in the promised blessing. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of his prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. And you find a blessing in verse 3, and you see another one in chapter 22. And actually, there's five in between that. This, this is a book of blessing. You would never normally think that, but seven times blessed. And he starts in the first chapter and the last chapter, but he says, listen, if you read it, if you hear it, and if you keep those things that are written in it, you will be blessed. Because finally, it's persuasive urgency for the time is near. For the time is near. So we should approach this not, as, not with terror. It should be like, John, I am just totally amazed that God the Father, through the Son, through the angel, gave it to me. But what about to us? This is how, how we should be blessed. Father, thank you so much that you gave the truth to your Son, who gave it to the angel, to, gave it to John, and he wrote it down, and now I can understand it. Because prophecy and knowing what's going to happen and how God is going to end and seeing Christ exalted and knowing that righteousness will be rewarded and ungodliness will be punished, what does that do for all of us? That encourages us, but that also purifies us, right? You want to live for Jesus? I trust you want to live for Jesus because he's coming back and he's going to reward you, right? So prophecy transforms us as we study it uh, 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 properly. Let's stand as we worship him.